Welcome to the Salad Days Podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite artists talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and hang out for a bit. Our journey this week features our special guest, Taylor Knox, an accomplished solo artist, member of the Golden Dogs, and many other bands, and we get a chance to talk about all that good stuff right here. So one of the great things uh, about touching base with someone like Taylor is the... Um, just sort of positivity and an energy that uh, he has for life and for music. And I can definitely remember clear as day the very first time that I met him out at Sandbanks for uh, the very first, uh, um, our very first event in the park many years ago. And uh, so he's done a lot of work. I definitely became familiar with uh, both seeing him play with other bands and then his his own records are, are uh, really great. And we get into that in the conversation, but um, uh, just you know, kind of a kind of a you know a, a Canadian uh, icon, up and comer, and uh, you're going to learn about some of the new things that he's got coming up, and uh, you can expect a lot more uh, to come from Taylor. But like I said, as a connection point into the the early days of Xenier, just another uh, just another really great guy, great musician. So uh, it was really good to talk, and here he is, Taylor Knox. So uh, the the first thing that I like to do, Taylor, is just uh, speak to uh, a point of shared history that we have uh, over okay. over the years doing music. And so I think of I think of my music events here in the county, and the very so the very first one that we ever did was at Sandbanks when it was called Sandbanks New Waves, and yeah. the headliner was Cuff the Duke, and I believe you you may have played in more than one band for that show. And I'll let you tell me, but also uh, you came back again a couple of times. You came, you did a headline set, a County pop. You did a headline yeah. set a, a couple of years later at Sandbanks the year that Sloan played. And I remember Chris Murphy uh, played bass with you at that show. But uh, That's right. what are your memories of some of the, some of those, uh, so, some of those times here in Prince oh, Edward County? Well, just the, the, the vibe, such a good vibe, you know? Um, I remember that first one. I don't know if I played in multiple bands, but I definitely played with Paul's band, the Hylozoas. Would have been on yes. that bill, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Paul and I are old friends. Paul produced. Um, Paul produced the the second Golden Dogs album, which is the first one that I was on, which was a you know pivotal moment in my life. I had just moved to the city, and um, I joined this band called the Golden Dogs, who were my favorite band. Um, I'll never forget Dave, the lead singer of the Golden Dogs, calling me just kind of out of the blue, sitting in my dorm room at U of T and saying like, hey, um, this is Dave. I have this band called the Golden Dogs. Um, we need a substitute guitar player. And I was like, oh, yeah, I love the Golden Dogs. And he was like, oh, no, you must be thinking of someone else. <laughs> nobody's, <laughs> nobody's heard of us yet. We're just local. And I was like, oh, no, I was at your show like a month ago at the Alma Combo. And I I already know how to play all the songs. He's like, oh, that's oh. Canadian. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so that's so that very cool phone call led to me basically joining that band and then switching to drums because our drummer quit. And then the following fall, it's like, okay, we've got a budget because it was, you know, it was the early 2000s, so there were still budgets for making records. 
And they're like, we've got a big yeah. budget and we're going to go oh, into yeah. a studio and we found this producer named Paul. And I remember being kind of afraid because, you know, the producer, he's going to tell me I'm not playing the parts right or <laughs> tell me to do it again. But of course I ended up, Paul's a lovely guy. So we ended up being really good friends. We're still friends to this day. Um, so yeah, that's how that relationship started. And then over the years, I've when Paul has played Hylozoa shows, I've played uh, uh, drums with him, one of two drums. But that's the best part about that band. There's always two drum kits. Uh, one specific memory I have about the Hylozoas, and I think I believe that opened the, you guys opened the show. And then I think there was one point during the show where us, for some reason a fighter jet flew over top, right <laughs> as you guys were playing. But it it made it actually was sort of added to the gravitas, from what I recall. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so that would go very well with some of the heavier moments of uh, the Hylozoas music, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and then okay. I remember the time playing with um, playing the County Pop when when it was my own set, and um, Chris filled in on bass because my bass player booked a trip to Japan and he got his dates wrong. He had put it on the other weekend, you know, like sometimes right. happens in his calendar, and he went, and I went, oh shoot, Aaron, you, you can't go to Japan that weekend. That's the gig. And he went, oh, man, I've already booked it, so I have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, Chris filled in and did, obviously did an amazing job. And it was a real, you know, it still blows my mind that I even know the Sloan guys because when I was, uh, you know, kind of junior high, high school age, they were just like gods to me, you know? They're my favorite band. And when you're that age, like, people in bands aren't just... Uh, fellow musicians they're like this you know they're superheroes and i'm correct that you have filled in for andrew on drums before uh, on stage is that right with sloan yeah a couple times one time he had a broken rib and another time actually chris had a broken collarbone so i i filled in for uh i played drums just for andrew songs that's cool that was another one yeah so that's a, you know really fun and like those those songs are like you know they're they're pretty ingrained in my brain, so it's it's really just fun to get to play them with the uh, with the OGs, you know, instead of just with my friends in the basement. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay, let's 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 set the tone. We're gonna try and go go back to when you were a young young man, and okay. uh, so just to just to set that up. So tell us, uh, just confirm where you're joining this conversation from today, and then tell us where you grew up. Okay, so I am currently in Orillia, Ontario, which is about just over an hour north of Toronto. And uh, my wife and I moved here kind of accidentally in the pandemic, as a lot of people, similar to things that a lot of people did in, in yep. COVID. Um, and I grew up in, I was born in Toronto, but then I, I spent all my formative years in Aurora, Ontario, which is a suburb. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. Okay, so so we're going to go back to Aurora and uh, the sort of opening question, trying to get at the sense of, you know, maybe when you were, um, you know, 12, 10, even 13, and yeah. you're 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 a younger younger dude and uh you know you're back you're back at your your house your home and it's a friday or saturday night and there's uh something cooking in the kitchen and uh it's pretty memorable and so the question is is what's on the stove and and why do you remember it so well oh good question i don't remember any specific meal but i remember my favorite meal was shepherd's pie there you go when i was around that age that was like my birthday request so and not that it was a regular thing, but it wasn't su super rare. It wasn't like I only got it on my birthday. It just I remember that being my favorite meal. That's that's a great that's a great one. Nobody's ever brought that up before. The birthday request that is such an important uh, part of because I remember I remember you know in my case there was there was food uh, specifics. Often it was uh, McDonald's, believe it or not, but 
but I, yeah. I, more importantly, because a very big family, I remember on your birthday, you got, and this was when early days for the remote control, it meant that on your birthday, you got the remote all day long. Ooh. And that was the most important thing uh, because it meant you could c- control, you know, just with, again, with everyone competing for what was, what would be on. And I'm sure we had some common ground, but that was a pretty big deal to be able to, for the full day, be able to c- control the uh, the TV viewing, which is also a related question I have for you. So sure. uh, in terms of what's something that, you know, that you remember from audiovisual TV, you know, I mean, I was pre-computer, maybe you were computer. I don't know what, what, what kind of things do you remember at that age being on nice. in the house? Um, I, well, when you just say computer, like I remember the early computer in our house and I remember ICQ chatting, but I think that was yeah. a little later than, um, than the era of my life that we're talking about. What I remember about those kind of first few years in Aurora, like the kind of eight to 13 is a lot of like watching full house with my family, which is the cheesiest show in the world. But um, yeah. that was yeah. kind of the, and I suppose it was just like something that um, felt like kind of kid safe to my parents or whatever. And, you know, I, I definitely remember like as a 10 year old thinking like, wow, Uncle Jesse's so cool. He's in a band. <laughs> oh yeah yeah i remember thinking that that's that's funny because uh when i um when i think of i do that is one of the things i i'm always interested in is where what kind of like musical touch points you may have had in through yeah through through stuff like tv because you know there were some variety shows that we used to watch but um nice. i can't think of I, you know actually what comes to mind believe it or not is um the, you know, I, you know, I watched happy days in real time, you know, when it was right. actually it really was happy days or whatever. And there was the character leather Tuscadero was the sort of, uh, kind of like the Joan Jett, uh, character oh. in that show. And of course the actual characters like in immortalizing that Weezer video, um, they're, they really would actually play on stage, uh, this little stage in Al's restaurant. And so, Oh, that cool. was probably an early form of rockin', and, and like I said, because uh, because of Rivers Cuomo uh, immortalized that, it must have hit him pretty good yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, that would be a memorable. You know, you don't see a lot of bands on TV in kind of mainstream television. You know, tell me, tell me more about uh, the you know your family. Um, what? Um, how many you know brothers and sisters? And uh, and, and oh, you know. I have I have one younger brother, and um, he was kind of vaguely interested in music, but my my parents were both, you know, just like uh, very musical. Um, my mom studied music in university. And so she would always tell me that when, you know, I became obsessed with music at an early age. And she would always say, well, I used to play the piano for you when you were, you know, when you're still in the womb. So maybe that's where you got it from. Yeah. And then yeah. um, my dad was in a, kind of a high school band in the 60s doing, you know, the hits of the day, which is like Beatles and Van Morrison and. I think they even did a stone song. Um, so he, and then he kind of, in his early twenties, he did a couple of summers in like a traveling folk group where he was the guitar player and there's like maybe 10 or 15 singers. So there's definitely like music in my, in my, uh, in around the house a little bit. And my, my earliest memory is being three years old and, um, learning how to work the record player. Yeah. Um, I was obsessed with the album London town by wings. Wow. And, um, which is very cheesy, but still just like, still just melts me. Like, I just love it so much. Even though, like, I, intellectually, I listen to it, I think, like, oh man, Paul is such a cheese ball by this point. Uh, my heart just goes, like, oh, but this is the best thing I've ever heard, you know? And so I remember asking my dad, like, okay, so then 
from that led to an obsession with the Beatles. Um, and I remember saying to my dad, like, what do you remember? Like, why was I so drawn to the Beatles? And he said, I don't know. He said, I think you just liked the Wings album. And then you liked it so much. I just thought, well, you know, when you're a little kid, all you want to hear is the same thing over and over. He said, I probably just got sick of it. And I thought, well, if you like Wings, maybe you like this guy's other band, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. it, it makes me think of how I used to listen to, uh, you know, it's, a, it's like that perennial question, are you a Stones guy or a Beatles guy? Um, yeah. Th- there was there was a lot of vinyl in the house growing up. And I do remember that the, you know, the Beatles that we had was often like seemingly more in the hits uh, right. category, meaning, you know, the kind of the, the stuff that really bubbled to the top. And I, you know, as I got into, you know, later years, starting to, you know, play music and, and particularly probably connecting with Mike being a major Beatles freak, uh, nice. coming across actually hearing records like Revolver end to end. And it's like, it's almost like it's a different thing. And and if you're really into music and you, and you, you hit uh, particularly Revolver, it's just, there's so many things about that that are, you know, epic, right? I mean, the Beatles are epic, but, but there's, there's the, there's the end to end experience of a record like Revolver, which is, uh, you know, a touchstone for probably 99% of musicians out there. For sure. Yeah. That's an amazing one. And it's like, you know, there's, um, there's so much weird stuff on that one. Whereas, like you said, like if you just get exposed to like the, the 62 to 66 or 67 to 70, um, compilations, you know, those are just meant to highlight the stuff that most people know, which tends to be the more like, uh, easy listening is the wrong word, but like more digestible, like pop stuff, right? Yeah. That, that, those are exactly the records that I, you're referring to that I was listening to. The, those, yeah. Things. And those, those were my favorites when I was a kid too, just probably because it was the most available. Okay. So you're, so you're in the house. What is, what is the first uh, instrument that you uh, actually got of your own or were given? Oh yeah. I remember this clear as day. I was asking for a guitar. So I, I would always like kind of, even as a little, little kid, I would take my dad's guitar and just kind of like, you know, put it on my lap and kind of whack the strings. And then I even had like a, um, a little toy plastic guitar, which was my pride and joy when I was three or four. And then I had like a little, there's a photo of me with a little kind of kid's toy drum set also around that age. So like I was just obsessed, but I'm sure I was asking my parents for a guitar for Christmas all the time. And then eventually when I was, I think around eight, like around grade three, um, my grandpa got me a baritone ukulele because he went to the store and said, you know, my, my eight year old grandson wants a guitar what do you recommend? And they said, Ooh, well, that's pretty, you know, a guitar will be pretty big for him. Why don't you try this baritone ukulele? It's kind of a miniature guitar. Wow. And it's basically a, uh, it is a miniature guitar. It's like a lot bigger than a, with a, a normal ukulele, but still like, you know, less than half the size of an acoustic guitar. And it's just the, um, the interesting thing about it is that it's tuned to the same, the exact same notes as the, the highest four strings on a regular guitar. Ah, so that's so smart because I was I was learning how to play the guitar, but just from my tiny fingers, you know, on a tiny neck. And it was just like, it was four out of the six uh, strings of every chord. So I kind of had, it was a really smart move. And I, I guess whoever was at that music store that suggested that I, was a good suggestion, you know? <laughs> you know, it's funny you mention that because I know that there's that, there's an epic ukulele program in the East Coast, right? That that oh. uh, sort of uh, played into the story of Sloan and several others uh, who it was basically a, a way to get it in schools. And I, you know, never really had a, a um, never really owned a ukulele until, I don't know when my kids were just young and I used to 
you know, fart around with it. And the thing about it that's cool is you can, you know, with a couple of fingers, you can make all these sounds and songs. And there's many current pop examples of songs straight up, straight off the ukulele. Uh, but it's For the sure. alternate tuning that kind of messes, kind of messes me up. As somebody who knows a little bit about guitar and coming into it, it's kind of a yeah. funny thing that, that, um, if the goal is to kind of create musicians, then obviously ukulele is awesome. But if the goal is to create guitar players, I think the, your strategy is perfect, right? Because you got yeah. the tuning right there, and you get your fingers all used to it. And yeah, you're of good course, to go. as soon as you, like you said, as soon as you try to play, if you've played any guitar even for ten minutes, if you know even one chord, and you try to do anything on a ukulele, it's just a total mind melt, right? Because everything's different and it doesn't make sense. But <laughs> it's oh, yeah. for sure, yeah. Okay, so you're so uh, just because I'm kind of fascinated with the the idea of uh, uh, musicians that you know become like basically get on the stage. The concept of where the stage fits in. There's there's there's, there's you know all your early experiences with your family, access to music, and but can you think of the first time that you either played on a stage, saw someone on a stage, or some the impact that the like, I'm going to call it not the musical stage, but the rock stage had for you. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so yes, I absolutely can. And there, it's probably a twofold answer. I remember ha- from the library borrowing like a Raffi live in concert video. Oh, yeah. And so watching that and being like, wow, there's drums, there's like an electric, it's probably a bass, you know, it's like, wow, an electric guitar, there's all these people that looks so cool. Like, that must be so cool to get to do that. That's like, very young i remember seeing that and then probably around the same time um i don't know this is like bringing up something that's deep in my memory that i've basically forgotten about which is that i guess my dad used to get up on stage at church and it wasn't actually church it must have been like saturday afternoon or like an after church thing and like kind of perform with his guitar like sing some songs for people and i can't picture who was in the audience if it was like for kids or for just like kind of coffee time after church yeah, but I guess at a certain point he must have done it more than once because I said like, "Can I come up too with my little plastic electric guitar?" Cool. And uh, so I guess it's you know wanted to be your your, your dad's the coolest when you're a kid. So I guess it's just like, "Wow, that's cool," and I want to do that too. And I, there is I don't I wouldn't say I have a memory of doing it, but I've seen a picture, and I can remember being like, "That is a real cool thing," you know, having that feeling even at that young age. It's like, you, you know, they've got on YouTube, they've got these things they call reaction videos where they'll play like uh, somebody like Metallica song for the very first time. And they show 10 right. people or reacting. Those two, those two teenagers hearing the drum fill in, in the air tonight by Phil yes. Collins. Seen that yes. One. But as, as you're describing this scenario and I, I've had, you know, talked to others uh, on this uh, podcast is, is that I almost makes me think I wish I could have a go back in time and have a reaction video of your face. The first time <laughs> young Taylor sees, sees that, that, situation happening on stage because i know for mine it would probably be like like jaw drop or whatever because there's for something sure. about hearing the live instruments and seeing it and not necessarily thinking i'm going to do that but just kind of connecting the dots because uh, there's yeah. something about live music that's a little bit different than hearing an amazing recorded uh, product you know what i mean for sure yeah and yeah that's cool do you remember your first kind of stage experience memory well yeah uh, i i it was this uh, it was it was that it was a um I was in school in probably grade seven or eight and it was a educational rock band that came, came to our school and they did educational songs. They had smoke and lights and, uh, 
and it was just you know i think that you know put the lights down the auditorium and then they they sang songs about you know whatever like you know healthy lifestyle or something yeah, and it, it was just <laughs> it just yeah it just it just it really i remember definitely something clicking when i saw that because it was it's again like it's the sound of uh when air moves you know when you kick you hear a live kick drum maybe for the yeah. first time with amplification for example or or hearing a bass note where it just rumbles your your chest you know that yeah. i think some of those elements would, would have come in and you know, it kind of set me on some kind of path, I think probably from that first show, but, nice. but let's go back. Let's go back to recorded music for a second. This, cause this is okay. a good segue into the second part of the conversation where we go back to your, I want to call it your embryonic track. So, so we're going to go back to you at age 13 okay. um, with the song that we're going to play right now. And this song is called disguise. Just give him your hand. I have found my face. I won't see it in why. 
Nice. Okay. So that was the song Disguise. And uh, seriously, Heavy Duty Rock, uh, age 13, I really want to know who's on it, what's on it, how did that come to be? What did you record it with? Uh, so much yeah. uh, rock and roll energy going on. Well, thank you. Yes. Yeah, so as well as being very cringe for me to listen to when I discovered this tape a couple of days ago, I'm also like, holy shit, this is kind of awesome for a 13 year old. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, so this was about um, three years into my recording, my personal recording career. So I'd learned some techniques. So how I started was I started out by I learned that the Beatles did overdubs. And I don't know where I learned that. It must have been in a book. And so my thought was, OK, well. You know, I must have said to my dad, what's an overdub? And I got the idea that it was one thing playing back while you play something else. So I realized that I had two tape machines. If I if I borrowed the tape machine from the kitchen and the tape machine like in the the, the family room, I could play the tape that I'd already recorded on one and then add another layer on another while yeah. recording, like performing it live and recording on the second one. So that's what I was doing for my first kind of album or two in my in my you know, in my bedroom, I was making albums. And then I learned there was this thing called a four track tape machine. And I went, Oh my God, that's this amazing technology. That means you don't have to do two tape machines at once. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would go on periods. It was basically like every March break and every Christmas holiday, it would just be like, you know, can you take me to the music store and rent me the four track? Can you take me to the music store and rent me the four track? That was kind of like my, my number one activity to do. And so this would have been, when by the time this song happened, this probably would have been like my fourth or fifth time renting a four track. And I can hear uh, just from the quality that I've also at this point now got my hands on a real drum set because my first few recordings, I was playing on a toy drum set for kids Yeah, and they sound hilarious. Um, but so somehow I got my hands on a real drum set and yeah. And then I would just, you know, set everything up. I probably just had one mic, maybe two, and just kind of pointed at the drums, do the drum track, pointed at the guitar amp, do the guitar track, um, and just kind of build it up one thing at a time. And actually, I can even hear that this, uh, still the way I work now is I always want to record the song before it's fully finished because I'm just so excited to record. It's yeah. kind of my favorite part. And I can hear that at some point in the in one of the verses, I just don't. I don't really have the words finished, so I just kind of make it up and I kind of don't sing for a second and then I say something yeah. random. But it's like that, it's funny because that, you know, all these years later, it's still kind of how I make, <laughs> I make records. I'm always like ready to do the vocal and I'm scribbling the, the last few lines on. <laughs> but but, but it, it is you playing everything on this track, is that right? It like, is, are yeah. You playing... I don't know, oh, I amazing. honestly don't know how, like I never set out to, to learn any instruments besides the guitar. I always wanted to play the guitar. And I think it's just that I wanted to be the Beatles. And I, it just did, I didn't know anybody else who played any instruments because I started so young, you know? Yeah. That was going to be the, the, the point I was going to make about this song's different maybe than some others that I've talked to, which is of course you play everything and there's, you know, there's so much skill for a 13 year old. Uh, uh, and one of the ways that, you know, I, I kind of got into music was because I could find some other people to play with. And then we right. sort of, none, we didn't, none of us knew what we were doing, but we kind of, you know, kind of grew, kind of grew together um, with some of our skills at the same time by playing together. And it's amazing that you, uh, given where you have gone, meaning you've, uh, you know, you've, you've done things where you've, you've got your own Taylor Knox 
musical career. You've got what I'm going to call side, side, side man, side person work. Uh, and all that really comes out of it. You see it all in this track. I mean, you, you, you're, you're playing everything and you're doing everything and you can just kind of see where, obviously you've always also got a fire for music clearly. Uh, so it's, it's very cool to see where, what this will allude to later on for you, you know? Yeah, it's really funny. And also uh, just some other observations that when listening to it back, I thought, oh yeah, this is like, I only heard, I knew that Jimi Hendrix and Led Zeppelin existed, but I think I had only heard their music for the first time, like within a year of making this recording. Wow. So it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. That must've just like blown my little head open. You know, it's like, I remember reading about Led Zeppelin and guitar magazines and having no idea what their music sounded like. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so then, so then, like, you know, sometime, I think it was like the summer, maybe between grade seven and eight or between grade eight and nine, I got my first Led Zeppelin CD and just being like, oh, you know, like, this is crazy. <laughs> so I can definitely hear, like, I'd, I'd recently, uh, you know, purchased a Wawa pedal as evidence on that <laughs> recording. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, it's funny you mentioned Zeppelin, too, because they, they could, you know... Uh, be one of my maybe my, my favorite like uh where i own every single one of their vinyl and i own it back then but the thing about zeppelin was i did not like them uh because similar to that what we were talking about the hits and the beatles uh really yeah. i knew stairway to heaven and a couple of others and then the people in my high school hate to say it that that were really into zeppelin I did not like, like I, they gave yeah, off, yeah. they gave off a vibe that I did not like. So I kind of stayed away from them until must've been university or something. But once I got into them and particularly, obviously on the drums, I think you could make the case that John Bonham is the, the, the best rock drummer of all time, you know? For sure. Yeah. So yeah, for, very, very important. I could see that would just, you know, blow your mind. But, but when yeah. you, when you finish something like this, you finish this cassette, right? So who hears yeah. it? Like who, who do you play it for? And, 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 and what, what came of it up until, you know, obviously playing it right here? Basically I would make four or five copies and sell them to my mom and dad for $5 a piece <laughs> or something. <laughs> I don't, I think maybe with my first one, I tried to sell it to some friends at school, maybe for five bucks. I don't know if there was a lot of takers. Uh, that's but it funny. was like, it's funny because um, it was never really about even other people hearing it from me. I just, I just love recording, you know, and like, it, what an interesting idea for a podcast, Dave, because it's, it's been really fun to like find some old tapes and listen to them, you know. There it's have been just, some, some others that have enjoyed digging up, like kind of doing the search to try to find, you know, uh, the gems, right? And it, but I, I, I really, I, I'm so blown away that you have something like this where you're doing everything, and and it's like it's just so it's it's very different from um from some of the other like I said this the scenario that you're you know because in some ways you think of a guy like I don't know uh, uh like what are the, some of the most famous you know uh, Prince uh, I don't know Lenny yeah. Kravitz people that can just sit down and do everything like I've heard this about Lenny to this day that he can just one of the things he likes he just goes in and course he's got he's tons of money in a huge yeah. studio but he he doesn't have to rely <laughs> yeah he can he can yeah. sit down and crack at these jams that are just amazing you know I, I, it's the fact that you're doing a version of that at 13 just blows me away yeah i mean it, honestly it blows me away too especially just because it was so um it's it was just so just so random you know i just was like oh i want to the beatles have recordings i want to have recordings 
And it's like, well, who's going to play the drums? I don't, I don't know anyone who plays the drums. So I guess I'll play my toy drum set <laughs> until it sounds good. You know, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I'm going to move, let's move the conversation to the third part that I call music becoming real. So the idea okay. is there's going to be a whole bunch of things and we may have to cover some of the things that, that take you into even the time when we met, uh, you know, at Sandbanks when you were playing with Hylozoos and others. And I remember, again, there's a, another sort of through line through these conversations is uh, my junior.com website. And I definitely remember getting your stuff and particularly the five song EP and yeah. just again, being blown away for the same reason. I'm, I'm kind of blown away by this 13 song track, but, but what is, what is music becoming real mean? It just means, you know, like in, in my case, there's all these different things that I was lucky enough to do over the years. But I think when I think back on it, I was walking in the woods this morning and I was just thinking about, you know, what, what is, what's, what's another example of that. And so for me, I, I think of the fact that um, we started playing in Kingston, uh, Mike and I, and nice. the first shows that we did were just these kind of like house parties and stuff like that. But for some weird reason, I think it's because we got, we got reviewed in Exclaim magazine in one of the very, very early issues if not Ooh, one of the first yeah. issues of Exclaim. And they reviewed our tape, five song tape that we also sold for five bucks. Nice. Um, but uh, one person, I think he might've been a writer there, uh, had a band and he said, why don't you guys come and play at the Cameron house? So the, the infamous wow. Cameron house. So our, really our first, our first gig was actually in Toronto, not like our first gig gig on a stage was in Toronto. And then the funniest part about this gig was that the, this, this band I believe we were called Cassius King. Nice. They were they were like the main band, but they said we got there and they said you guys are going to play last. And oh. so we kind of like depending on how you you view it, we headlined. I took <laughs> it as headlining at the time. It was just so amazing to be our you know because it was an epic. I had by at that point seen so many bands at the Cameron House over the years, and so cool. to be able to to be able to headline that show like it's like music became real maybe that night. Uh, and going like, wow, I just can't believe we're doing this. You know, we got to, we're dealing with for the first thing with a sound person and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, many examples, but that was one. And and again, at the epic Cameron. So when you think about, and maybe I might have to bring us up to speed to where you were, but give, give me an example of a point in, in your musical journey where you thought, this is something I'm going to keep doing, or this is what I'm going to do for my life. Yeah. Um, wow, that's such a cool, that must have been so cool to your first out of town gig at, being also like a headline at the Cameron house. That's amazing. Was, um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I just was always obsessed with being a musician it, from before I can even remember, you know, knowing anything else. Um, so it was always just about like the next thing, but I can definitely remember. So fast forward to like, you know, a few years later, I, I make all my recordings on my own and then I want to be in a band. So I make some friends with the best musicians at Aurora high school. And, um, they're all really into the red hot chili peppers and incubus. So, <laughs> so now I'm like, yeah, okay. Those, those bands are very talented. Not particularly my wheelhouse, but like I can, I got a wah pedal, you know, I can play some, uh, walk a chicka kind of guitar. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bass player goes like, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> and so I had, a, we were in a, a funk rock band called Pangea. Nice. And, um, we kind of, that was a little, obviously way more collaborative. We wrote all the songs just as kind of jams. And then the singer would, you know, just sing whatever over top. And we went through a few singers. Um, but I remember our first gig in Toronto um, very clearly, which was one of those um, pay-to-plays uh, Supernova uh, Battle of the Bands. Yep. Which, of course, now I just think, oh, what a what an awful, like, 
what an awful thing to do to children. But at the time, it was just like, oh, my God, we're going to get to play in Toronto, on Queen Street West. So just down the street from the Cameron House was yeah. a place I'm sure you'll remember and have played many times called the Cathedral. Yep. And it was, um, yeah, it was just like, I'm, I'm sure I had it on, you know, on a, on a physical paper calendar circled in a big red circle for the three months leading up to it when, from when it was booked, from when they said, guess what? We, you're the lucky band. We choose you to play with these nine other bands. And if you don't sell, <laughs> you know, if you don't sell 20 tickets, you don't get to play. <laughs> oh, and geez. you just go, and you just go like, wow, that's incredible. Thank you. And I, you know, I don't remember the specifics of, you know, we did it like four or five times before we went, Hey, wait a minute. There's, we're just paying these people to play and we can just set up a gig ourselves. But, um, you know, you probably end up selling like 12 tickets to your friends and having to buy the other eight yourself. <laughs> or something well, I like guess, that. I guess given that your parents were already buying your cassette. It was, it was... <laughs> exactly. Maybe my parents bought five and probably like, you know, probably by that point, like the bass player had a job at second cup. So he probably went fine. I'll buy the other three, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just so we, yeah. can, we don't have to cancel the gig. <laughs> but yeah, so as much as it's easy to laugh at all that stuff now and kind of what garbage it was, that was incredible. And like, you know, driving downtown. Also at that point in my life, like me and my friends, like the fun thing for us to do on a Saturday afternoon when the weather was nice was to, you know, get somebody's mom or dad to drive us to the go station take the bus down to Finch Station, take the subway down to Queen Street West, take the streetcar west enough to the record shops, and then like walk up and down and like see all the gig posters and go to all the record shops, you know, scouring for... Back then, you could find amazing records for like three ninety nine. It's so funny looking at going to a record store now and being like, you know, Genesis selling England bad the pound kind of scratched $40. <laughs> and I have my copy of it, which still has a sticker of like three ninety nine, you know, in like pristine condition. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. So it was, so that was like our, that was what I did for fun was just hanging out in that neighborhood, you know, maybe like three times a year. That's something that would happen because of all the, uh, the epic journey that it took to get there on all the different forms of public transit. But so to be able to play a gig in that neighborhood was just like the, the bee's knees, you know? We had a, a similar experience in, uh, us Hosers in Oshawa. We used to, uh, take similar, take a go train, go to the Union Station nice. and then walk, walk up Young Street one side and then walk back the other side and hit all the head shops, nice. hit all the, uh, army surplus buy some ironic t-shirts and this was of like kind of like a big you know uh yeah but then but then later like i said yeah getting getting a chance to actually because queen street was you know uh you know the era that we we're talking for myself would you know be like early 90s or whatever and nice. it was you know it was just the, that much more maybe gritty than uh than than it was at one time or even young street you know when i used to come in high school it was a little, a little different, but no, it's, it's interesting that that that's so, so music kind of became real pretty, pretty early then given all the things that, that were, were coming your way later, but it's kind of speaks again to the idea of actually getting on a stage, playing in front of people, um, seeing your name on a poster maybe, or for sure. Yeah. Uh, seeing the name, even though there was 15 bands on that first poster, that's just so cool. You know, it's like, wow, that's us. Like, it's, yeah, it's mind blowing at the time. Do you um now now so again in sort of the early days what so what was one of the first what was you mentioned the golden dogs uh, in a yeah. sort of I'm gonna call it the pre conversation that we had what 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 is what was your first um 
you know, kind of, I guess, uh, you know, band experience. Was it Golden Dogs? Yeah, well, that's the first time it got real, real. So that's real, like, real. yeah. So I am, you know, I spent my high school years with my high school band, and then we all, and then my goal, my whole goal in life is to get to Toronto so I can be part of the music scene. And so I'm lucky enough to get accepted to U of T, and then I go, well, that's perfect because now I have like a parent-sanctioned way to move to Toronto. <laughs> right, right. Um, and that's going to be incredible. And then I go to, you know. Frosh week is whatever. It's just a bunch of people. They just put you on a school bus and they take you here. They put you on a school bus and they take you there. And I was a double cohort year. So most of the people couldn't even drink. I was 19, but a lot of the people in the first year were 18. But I remember specifically there was one night that was like just like pub night at the local pub, one of the U of T uh, bars called the Cat's Eye on Victoria University campus. Yeah. And I walk into this room and there's this band playing and it turns out to be the Golden Dogs. Ah. And I just thought, oh my God, I was right. If I thought if I, if I could just get to Toronto, everywhere I go, there's going to be these incredible bands. <laughs> and little did I know that like, that was the, <laughs> they're just, they were just an incredible band. And there's many bands in Toronto, good and otherwise, you know, <laughs> like there are anywhere. But I just, and I remember they played a couple of songs that were amazing, a couple of originals, you know, Dave, the lead singer was just like this very, uh, charismatic frontman doing all sorts of wild stuff and then i remember the bass player was a kind of a shorter guy he was standing on a small table and i thought well that's so crazy like how can you just stand on a table i've never seen anything like that you know my little suburban brain <laughs> and then they played i don't actually remember if it was magical mystery tour or band on the run i think it was maybe band on the run and they played magical mystery tour at a different show i saw them but then i went oh my god and these guys know the beatles <laughs> Because it like it hadn't occurred to me because I love the Beatles so much that just like well everyone in a band probably loves the Beatles I mean that's the Beatles started a million bands right that's yeah. the whole the whole thing so that and so I just remember going up to them afterwards and being like I really like how you guys played a Beatles song or a Wings song and they went oh that's nice kid you know um, and then randomly you know then and they you know it was the early two thousand so they put flyers on the table being like here's our, you know, if you liked this show, here's our next show in, in a month and a half at the Elma combo, which I dutifully bought my tickets to and went to showed up early and, and went to. And then a couple of weeks after that, I, I got a call from Dave asking if I could fill in on guitar for a couple of gigs. Um, so that connection was, uh, the drummer in my high school band went to the Trevis Institute to learn recording. Yeah. And, um, rite of passage for all Trevis uh, students who are in bands is at one point the professor says, and so, you know, for our for our band recording class, we're going to need a band. Does anybody know a band? And I'm sure, like, all of their hands go flying up. My band will do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was that, just that. My band will do it. My band will do it. And it was, you know, him t at the next band practice, guys. I've got a huge opportunity for us. We're going to get to be the volunteer band in my recording session. But guess what? They'll record a song of ours for free. And we went, oh, oh yeah. God, the real studio. This is crazy. And so we did that, and then the, the producer engineer was this really awesome guy named Peter Lee, and he kind of went, okay, well, I'm developing this singer-songwriter, you know, as like a side hustle. I'm like a manager, you know, producer. Um, you kids are actually pretty good, and I bet you'll work for free. Will you come make some demos for this guy for me? And every, every kind of hour you spend in the studio working on his project, I'll give you a free hour in the studio for your project, which, again, felt like the greatest trade in the world. So That's awesome, part of that. Yeah. Part of that project was this singer-songwriter had a friend who it turns out was a mutual friend of Dave, the Golden Dogs guy. So that's how we ended up with my number. 
That's great. Um, yeah. You know, in this may be a, a jump, but the so the where does where does the very first kind of like Taylor Knox rock band show happen in that timeline? Where oh, you know, when's the question. first time you played? Do you think? Yeah. So in in that whole era, as I was joining the Golden Dogs, I also had met another person named Dave, who we kind of were writing songs together. So we had a band called Major Grange where I played bass and sang. And it was pretty collaborative. Like, you know, we were trying to do like a, like a, you know, collaborative songwriter thing where we'd bring each other kind of like three quarter finished songs or half finished songs and help the other person finish it up. And then at a certain point, I don't really remember how that fizzled out, but at a certain point that kind of fizzled out, like maybe the drummer left and then we just kind of stopped getting together and, you know, things weren't really happening. And then the Golden Dolls got really busy or whatever. And I just remember at a certain point, I was, uh, you know, in getting into my late 20s, I played in the Golden Dogs all these years. And then I started playing with Hayden, which was an amazing experience yes. as well. Yes. Love, big fan of his music before I ever met him and like love, love, lovely guy. Love playing with him. But it's just like all these amazing opportunities kept happening. And at a certain point, um, I remember thinking like, oh, shit, like I'm basically 30 now and I've never done anything myself. And that was always I always figured I would play in these other bands as like a way to help open doors to, you know, to be able to work on my own music, I guess. Like not the only reason, obviously, there's a lot of amazing things, but that it just always felt like it was going to be a side thing. And then it ended up being my full-time job, which is incredible. And I felt very grateful for it. But I thought, oh, yeah, like, I better get on this before another decade goes by, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like many things in life. So, okay. So I, it's not entirely the first thing I did. At some point around 2008, I set up all my gear at a basement and I recorded uh, an EP. Uh, I wrote six songs about the first chapter of the book, Moby Dick. Wow. And I recorded an EP based on those songs. Um, so do, in doing that, um, I just thought, you know, and I played it for some friends and they were like, hey, this is actually pretty good. Like, you should share this with people. And I was like, oh, okay. And again, I, I just, it turns out, I guess I'm mostly just making music for myself because that had never occurred to me. And so I think I maybe put it on MySpace or something. And then I played a show and, um, you know, just got a bunch of my friends from bands, which I was very lucky to know lots of very talented friends to play a show of these songs. And I remember thinking like, well, I'm not really a singer. Like, I can't really do this. And I remember the promoter, it was at the Rancher Relaxo. And the promoter said, hey, that was a great show, Taylor. And I said, well, you know, I'm not really a singer. I can't do this. He said, oh, I thought you, I thought you sang great. Like, I thought you did great as a front man. And I just went, oh, okay. Gee, yeah. Interesting. Because I, I think leading up to that, I'd always thought, oh, well, I'm just the guitar player. I'm just the drummer. Somebody else has to sing. I'm not that good of a singer. You know? And I still don't think I'm not good of a singer, but I think I'm okay. And um, it was just nice that that promoter, well, Dave, you're bringing up a lot of memories I didn't realize I had. Um, it was really nice that that promoter took that moment to just like say that to me, you know, oh, it, it just takes, it just takes one, one thing to, to set you in a certain direction. It, for some reason, as you're talking about all this, it's making me, reminding me how, um, on your records, one of the things that I notice in addition to all your playing is your lyrics. Uh, oh, yeah. there's a sort of, there's a type of positivity that you have in your lyrics that I mean, uh, you know, uh, since meeting you a bunch of times and coming to know you even better here today, um, I, I definitely sense uh, there's a, there's a, a type of positivity that comes from you. But when it when when it speaks to your lyrics, what what would you say? Um, you just mentioned the the um, uh, 
the five, the, the EP with, and again, what was the book again? You, that you, Moby Dick. Uh, Moby Dick. Yeah. Sorry. Moby yeah. Dick. So, but yeah. in general, in general, your lyrics, do you have, do you have any comment on, uh, maybe it's more of a blanket comment, but am I kind of reading that right? That there's sort of a, there's sort of a positivity in, in your words where again, as, as I said in some yeah. of my other conversations, I, I'll admit, I do, I listen to, I listen to music that I might call sometimes downbeat or kind of mopey. Yeah. <laughs> but you're, st- you've got some, you know, you got some great themes in there. What would you say about that? Well, thank you. Yeah, I definitely, I, I'm definitely like a really glass half full person. I have it all my life. I think that kind of comes from my dad. My dad's a real kind of like happy go lucky guy generally. Um, and I don't know why, I guess, you know, I definitely found when I was digging through some old tapes, I found some like, you know, 13 year old angst songs, like leave me alone kind of things. But I guess they didn't really feel like what I, what I liked about music. And I wouldn't say that I've made a conscious effort to try to stay positive, but I guess that's not true. I, I guess I kind of think, well, you know, I guess I'm kind of always looking for a silver lining, whether it's life or lyrics or whatever. So that probably influences, you know, choices that I'm making kind of line by line when I'm writing songs. That's cool. That's cool. Let's, uh, yeah. let's, uh, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to fly this conversation to the, the last of the four parts that I just call flash forward. So we're just going to, we're going to zoom up to today, uh, okay. skip all the cool stuff that you've done over the years and just talk about, start by saying, uh, the last, you know, three months, six months, uh, tell me what you're currently doing, what you've, what are some of your current passions that you're involved in music or otherwise? Oh, um, well, the biggest thing is, um, well, I mean, the really biggest thing is that my wife and I are expecting our first baby this summer. Congratulations. Thank you. So now I'm very passionate about like reading stroller reviews and <laughs> car seat reviews <laughs> and all these things that I didn't care about until, you know, a few months ago. So that's number one. But kind of like uh, other life-wise before that, um, the the, mo- the coolest thing that I did was I met someone when we moved to Aurelia here who is also a kind of Toronto music scene person who had also accidentally moved to Aurelia. And they were just, you know, he and his wife were, were over one night and he was just saying to me, you know, I, I love being here and I love um, working on music, but it kind of sucks to have to spend two hours on the 400 if you have to leave during rush hour every time I want to go work in my studio. Excuse me. If only there was a place up here. And I said, yeah, you know, that would be so cool. Like, if you know, maybe we should go in on a place someday. And I think we were kind of talking about it in like a, two to five year someday plan. Um, And then um, in the meantime, uh, my father-in-law had watched the Beatles get back documentary and was, and was like, Oh, it's so cool. They just like, they made those songs. They recorded those songs. I know just like in a basement of some house. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, he's like, that's so cool. I thought recording studios had to be like state of the art facilities with, um, you know, with like all these millions of dollars worth of gear and special sound treatment. And we talked about how, yeah, you know, those things can help, but you can basically set up a studio anywhere, especially with computers and everything. So these two things combined where he said like, oh, well, I've got this, you know, I've got this old building with some space in it that's not being rented out. Like you can set up your gear there, which is very sweet because um, my Toronto studio like has happened to me three or four times now. It was I got an eviction notice because they're selling it to make condos. Yeah, yeah. So that was really nice. And then at the same time, when I had this sort of use of space, um, I, I met this guy, Nick, uh, who was living in Aurelia, saying, I'd like to have a studio here. And then long story short, a space in my father-in-law's building came became available. This like kind of a, 
a big, beautiful space. And he said, you know, you said to me, maybe you'd be interested in renting a space one day. Well, it's become available and they're, you know, they gave a two months notice. So I called Nick up and I was like, Hey, do you want to move up our plan instead of two years? Just make it on two months. <laughs> <laughs> and we were just kind of like, and he, uh, subsequently, it's crazy. We, we got the keys. We, we power, it was an old, um, it was an old auto body shop. Yep. Um, so yep. it was covered in a lot of grit and grime, which makes it very cool. And, um, you know, we power washed the floors a bunch of times. We painted it. And by the time we kind of were setting stuff up, getting ready to work, he got the eviction notice at his studio. They're tearing it down to make condos. So it was really impeccable timing. But so, yeah, so building a recording studio is <laughs> that was the very long answer. And the short answer is building a recording studio is what I've been up to the last six months. That's and a big really one. Exciting. Yeah, it's huge. It's been really exciting. And um, we really love how it's turned out. Um, and that's actually where I finished my new record that just came out last week. Uh, I I recorded the last couple songs there and mixed it all there, and it's it's just really um, you know to tie it back to when I was ten to thirteen years old. All I've re- ever really wanted was like a studio where I could work and not get kicked out of and have real drums. <laughs> so it's very cool that we have we, that I have access to that now. I, I think I sense a lot of good things are going to come out of this because you know some of the other conversations that I've had here include you know Pete Alcus who you know built an amazing studio in his house. He did. Um, it was Don, Don Kerr has an amazing studio in his house. Uh, nice. And you're you're. It sounds like you're just on the cusp of of you know uh, something that's going to be serve you well for for a long time. Because for example, one of the things that you know Don highlighted was that before he got into you know original versions of the gas station, he was just. Yeah. He was maybe some similarities, like a drummer or had a note as a drummer, but he's also a songwriter, musician. Yeah. And then exactly. when he kind of he kind of sort of tumbled into having a studio, that became something that he never could have imagined how much work and you know good stuff that would bring to his life to this day. So sure. it sounds yeah, like you're just you're just on the start of that that part of the journey, which is amazing. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I'm really excited to. Like it felt like we just got it up and running and then I finished my record in it. So that was just like the tip of the iceberg. So I'm really excited to now that the record's done, you know, work with some other artists in there and like record some more stuff. But it's cool. I'm sure that other people who have their own studios have touched on this, but it's just so cool to have it be your own space and have that feeling of like, if you're not, you know, not that you don't want to push yourself to get things done sometimes, but if, if it's just like, you know, if it's just getting late at night, you're not really feeling it. You can just be like, Oh, I'll just come back tomorrow or I'll come back in a week. It's like, it's all going to be here. You know? Well, we, I mentioned Lenny Kravitz earlier and I believe one of the things that he has, he probably has a 50 studios, but I know that uh, like what <laughs> one of his studios, like the idea is that of course there's everything mic'd and ready to go at, at all times. Nice. And so it's kind of, it's kind of fun to imagine that's one thing that you have is you can't, you, you have the gear across all the instruments. You've got the skill across all, all the instruments and the desire to write songs. So there could be some, uh, you know, again, Lenny Kravitz moments in your future with this studio. I hope so. Anyway. Yeah, I hope so. Now all I need to do is write a bunch more songs. <laughs> the easy part. Oh, for sure. For sure. Now, now, um, so what does this mean in terms of, um, yeah, you've got, you've got your new record out. So what, what kind of, what kind of format, uh, of, of touring and playing will we see from you in the next six months? Well, um, you know, the, we played a release show last week to, for the release day, which was really fun. And then we got a couple shows opening for Sam Roberts coming up, uh, That's great. in That's the great. summer, which will be really fun. And then I'm just going to be, I'm going to have a few months off of touring to be dad mode, uh, cause our baby's coming oh, yeah. in the summer. Yep. So that's really cool. And then, you know, um, 
just trying to figure out uh, fun ways to, to play live, Pro- probably looking to do some opening shows for some bands. It's always really fun to like get to a new audience. And we'll probably start something up in the fall, playing some shows, which I'm really excited to do. What would you say is, um, again, you're, you're just getting started, I think, on a, on a, on, on a, what, on a Mach 3, Mach 4 in your career. But, but to this point, what would you give, hit me with one career highlight. What do you think? Oh, wow. I mean, I've, like you were saying earlier, I've been lucky to do so many amazing things um, that I just, you know, I kind of feel like it's all a dream, really. Um, definitely playing drums with Sloan is just, was very cool very exciting and i still kind of look back on it fondly um just because it was such a performative part of my my music and then a second kind of highlight was is um just you know like a lot of musicians the most recent song i recorded because it was like the last song for the record it was one of those ones where it's like all the records done i'm already mixing but i wrote one more it's just got to get on there and it's it actually ended up being the last song on the, the new record it's called thanks infinity and um you know, it's it was the the second one I did kind of start to finish in the new studio. And I just remember recording the drums thinking like, wow, like, finally, I've got the drum sound I've always wanted. And like, really having the time to it's kind of in a lower part of my range. So I was able to sing it a, a few times, and like go back a, a week later and try singing it again, like a little more chill and just thinking like, oh, really, I finally really got it how I wanted to. Um, so that felt really good too, to just to tie it into the what's amazing about having your own space too, is like that kind of like um, that sense that time isn't quite as finite, you know, in terms of yeah. the music process. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, so, so um, one of the things the, the, that I like to kind of wrap, wrap the, wrap the conversation with, with the final question is really just to say, um, you know, you get a, get out kind of like a life lesson sort of theme again, even though you're, you know, you're, you you know, you might be one of the youngest people I've had on, on this so far, or let's just say, or maybe where you are in your, uh, you know, the, the, your musical growth, but to this point, uh, cause again, you've got, you've got a, you've got a baby coming. So you, there's, there's lots of stuff coming up for you, but, yeah, but exactly. as you look back, to, as you look back to yourself, you know, you're speaking, you, you're, you're going to get a chance to speak to your, um, 10, 11, 12 year old version of Taylor back in old Aurora. And yeah. you're going to, going to give, give that person some, some advice again, or a life lesson, maybe something you took from music and you, this, this, this young person is thinking about making, making a life in music or dreaming of that. What, what would you say to them? Do you think? Yeah. Well, sorry. I, I so I love that prompt. The first, when you first started saying about that, like a life lesson, I thought, well, you know, cause you're making me, making me, or we're getting to think about all these wonderful memories. It's like, Music is just so cool because like all, you know, so many different people I've got to meet, so many different places I've got to go. Like what an amazing gift. And, you know, it's all just because I liked a record when I was three, basically, you know, and it's like, that's pretty cool. Um, it just as a life lesson observation, music is cool, I guess. <laughs> and then yes. if I were to give advice to my younger self, I think it would just be like, you know, who cares? Like, don't care so much. Um, I listened to that stuff I was doing when I was kind of 10, 11, 12, 13. And it just sounds so, so free and like, you know, kind of cringy because I can hear that I've just gone in the middle of going through puberty, but like, it just sounds so fun and free. And then I started, you start playing with all these other bands in high school and they were all in that era. It was all kind of really heavy, like kind of scary rock metal. Yeah. And so I remember thinking, Oh, I got to make my music more like that so that I fit into the, 
to the scene, you know, the, the supernova cathedral scene. And I guess I would just, if I could say to myself, then like, who cares about all that? Like, just do, just do you, because that's, that sounds more, that's just way more valuable than trying to be someone else, you know? We went back to 2013 for that song, My Backyard, from the Lines album. Had to do that one uh, because of the, uh, the the looking back themes, all the, the good stuff, eating the mint. Uh, and, anyway, and also um, earlier in the, the uh, podcast, we heard the 13-year-old version of Taylor doing the amazing song Disguise, and that was uh, pretty mind-blowing. And so, uh, so, yes, Taylor does have a lot of big things coming this summer, babies, uh, recording studios, brand new record. Uh, make sure you tune in to uh, the liner notes and check out, uh, you know, the references to um, Taylor's Taylor's music, uh, the shows that he's surely going to have coming up in the fall. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that uh, that baby's going to take priority uh, probably right about any day. So um, thank you, Taylor, for taking the time to uh, catch up here. And uh, again, as I always say, make sure you get a chance to check out Taylor Live uh, in either in his own form or in the other bands he plays with. He's very accomplished, very amazing, and uh, I really appreciated getting the chance to talk today. So thanks again. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you again next time. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and tell all your best music-loving friends about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Zunger.com and me, Lemonade Dave. I've done a lot of things in music over the years, but these days, I mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in Prince Edward County. I'm going to crack a cold one right now. But if you're ever in PEC, be sure to ask for it by name and tell them Dave sent you. Dave had it made Sitting pretty in the shade Heaven 